This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer with Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today we are so very excited to welcome Brian Ponch Rivera, and we are not only going to talk about flow, that'll be our main area, but we might get into some other pretty interesting uh, subjects also. Welcome, Brian. Hey, thank you, Skip. Uh, thank you, uh, HF Mason, and thank you, Jake. Uh, it's really awesome to be here. I listened to several of your podcasts already. A lot of smart people on this podcast, so I'm going to lower the bar a little bit, okay? Brian, yeah. tell us a little <laughs> bit about your background as we get started. Yeah, so 1986, I think we all saw the movie Top Gun. I did. I was about 12 years old at the time. Uh, Ten years later, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life and uh, uh, ended up in California driving around on NAS Miramar and seeing these F-14s taking off. And uh, at the time, I was dating a, a girl out there, a nurse, and, and I met some of her friends that were helicopter pilots. And I realized, wow, these guys are not that bright. They're not that sharp, you know. Uh, anybody could do this. And so I applied, got into the Navy, uh, went through Officer Canada School, and then uh, ended up uh, graduating first, got F-14s, uh, short story long, ended up being an instructor in the F-14, and then uh, flew F-14 demonstrations. So I got to fly a lot of air shows when I was uh, in my late 20s, which was a lot of fun, early, early 30s. Uh, and after that, uh, got out of active duty, about 12 years of active duty service. Um, Punched out of the Navy, went into the reserve. Today, I actually wear the same rank as Maverick. I'm a captain in the U.S. Navy Reserve. Uh, he's been in 36 years or more. I've been in 26. So uh, uh, I'm not going to brag about who's, who's beating who when it comes to rank, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, about uh, <laughs> 10 years ago, I got out of active duty and, and was looking for something else to do. Wanted to be a project manager, and I came across this thing called Scrum. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but Scrum is, uh, is basically a planning uh, method or approach for for teams uh, created by another Top Gun, uh, Dr. Jeff Sutherland. So he he has a background in flying F4s. Uh, so I got into that space about 10 years ago. Uh, met some really cool people, including Gary Klein. Um, if you're familiar with his work in recognition prime decision making, uh, worked with uh, Dave Snowden, the creator of the Kinevin framework. Uh, got to meet my partners in crime on the Flow system, Nigel Thurlow, and uh, through him, John Turner over at Toyota, and we uh, came up with a book um, about four years ago. We were working on it. And about about the, about the same time, doing a lot of consulting, uh, I got asked to come back in the Navy. We had a, a problem. If you remember in 2017, we had a couple accidents at sea with the USS McCain and the USS Fitzgerald and a couple other ships at sea. Uh, they asked me to come back in and do something really unique, which was to go out and engage with thought leaders uh, in industry and meet with academia to really understand how do you build high-performing teams? How do you create a culture of safety? Um, how do you get leading indicators? How do you build uh, leaders and, and teams, of course? And um, that was pretty cool. I, I actually did some work with uh, Dr. Dan Lowe at uh, Seattle Children's Hospital. We could talk about that and human factors and the connection of the Toyota production system. Um, and then uh, I, I just been lucky, just the right place, right time, working with Dr. Spear, Dr. Steven Spear in the US Navy and on the outside. Um, so yeah, I'm doing a lot of name dropping right now, but, uh, uh just, just a big knuckle dragger here for me, but that's, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Uh, there's a lot more we could dive into, um, but, uh, anywhere you want to go today is fine with me. 
Well, Brian, uh, first of all, thank you very much for your service to our country. And uh, the first question I have to ask is, you know, you go by punch, but was that was that your call sign? Okay, so Ponch was your call sign, and and I, I wanted to tell you that in 1986 I was 18, and my my girlfriend, who's my wife, we went and saw Top Gun in uh, in Oxford. I was in summer school at Ole Miss, and then we went and saw it a couple of a uh, couple of weeks ago, and I was pleasantly surprised at how good it was. And I want to get you know as a as a naval aviator, you know, I'm sure Jake can can say that. When I see medical TV shows or I see medical movies or things like that, we're always saying, oh, no, there's no way there. That, that's not how it is in reality. What did you think about the movie? Was it was it true to form or? Uh, the flying was great. The, the flying scenes were incredible. Um, my wife actually said, did your face really look like that when you're pulling G's? I said, oh, yeah, it looks like that. So uh, uh, kudos to the team over at, the, you know, Top Gun Maverick and Paramount for doing that type of work. But as far as reality goes, uh, two of the gentlemen that were the technical advisor on, on that, uh, J.J. Cummings and uh, Sarge Slaughter, they were both my mentors uh, when I was growing up in the, in the Navy. Uh, great to see their work. I actually did some work with uh, J.J. on the USS Ford a few years ago. But uh, getting back to your question, uh, it, it's close enough. It's good enough. It's Hollywood, right? Uh, but a very enjoyable movie. Um, reality, eh. A little far off, but absolutely go see it. Oh, yeah. I, I highly recommend it if you haven't. Um, I watched your TED talk when you were in, in Budapest and you, you, you were talking about flow. And, and that's what we kind of want to focus on. And you said that that every system is a flow system and that we should be designing for flow. Could, could you kind of tell us a little bit about that? And and, and uh, yeah, absolutely. So. Several years ago, I was introduced to the Constructal Law. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but uh, it really says that all moving systems or all living systems are flow systems. And if you think about this, a, a flow system really has a couple components to it. One is a boundary, um, you know, a boundary around a person or our mind, a body, spirit, however you want to look at it. And then we have inlets and outlets, right? You could have a couple inlets or you could have a couple outlets. Um, that's the foundation of a flow system. So uh, inlet, outlet, and a boundary. Um, but the constructor law also points out that uh, there are two main characteristics of it, and that, is, that are those are really design and the currency that flows through that system. So design could be something like intent or a plan, and then a currency could be information, value to the customer. It could be blood in our body. It could be water through a system. Uh, you name it. But uh, anything that flows through a system. So the constructor law is really a, a first principle. Uh, really builds on the second law of thermodynamics and other parts of physics, uh, physical nature or physics from the, uh, the nature side of house. Uh, but that's that's number one. That's uh, where we get that. And then when you move into different areas of flow, uh, think about the Toyota production system where we really focus on the continu continuous value, excuse me, continuous value added uh, activities. Right. That, that's what most people look at when they think about flow. Uh, or the seamless transition from ideation to uh, to delivery. So uh, flow is really and often associated with the Toyota production system, but the way I look at flow is more of something um, towards a psychological piece and something that teams do. So from the psychological perspective of flow, uh, it's it's that deep embodiment where you know time just seems to not matter and, and we're so involved in something. Uh, we experience that when we're we're 
either meditating or we are uh, doing some deep breathing, some exercise, reading a book. It, it can be a, a matter of any any type of activity where we just get so involved with something, including music, uh, teamwork, sports. So there's that psychological flow that we learned from um, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi Mihai as well. And then the other type of flow that uh, we could talk about is what's uh, the number one characteristic of a high-performing team, and that is flow. So there's a, there's a few components behind that as well, including uh, having a novel environment or high-consequence environments, uh, that deep embodiment we get when we have clear understanding of the goals or the direction of travel, close communication. We can blend those egos or, or create that psychological safety where everybody has a voice and uh, just that that type of flow is something else we can look at as well. And of course, there's the other type of flow that we're learning more about from the, the world of psychedelics. And, and um, that is uh, how we destroy the default mode network in our brain. Uh, so we have access to that uh, the higher entropy and we can learn from our past, if you will. So there's a lot we can dive into. Yeah, I, yeah, I think we've we've all kind of been in situations where we felt we were in a sort of flow state. Uh, I, I like what you mentioned with about the team based environment. You know, I know I've had some call days uh, where we were on as a team, especially in residency that were incredibly busy, incredibly challenging cases. But we worked together so well um, that everything just kind of seemed to to be like what you were saying, where just your, your mind was kind of at at peace kind of on top of your game we've all been there I, I think in sports in some ways as well in hf i'm sure you've been there in the operating room but uh, you're talking about designing for flow can you comment just on how especially you know we're talking about teams like that how we have the design of the team can lead to more productive flow states such as those yeah so uh, what we're looking at here when we talk about design is really the interactions of the team so well, one idea is you take the mental models or shared mental models of a high-performing team from another organization or another team in another industry, uh, and you exact those practices. You move them over from there to, uh, let's say, from aviation or the cockpit of a fighter jet to healthcare, and that's been done before. I don't know if, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but human factors training, uh, team steps, that type of stuff has been borrowed from commercial aviation and fighter aviation. So focus on those interaction skills, those soft skills, those, uh, uh, those, those really hard skills of how to be uh, social creatures, right, and, and build that high-performing team. So that's what, when I talk about design for flow on a team, is to create those type of mental models of how do you plan, how do you execute, and how do you assess, how do you improve the future. So you bring those over, and that helps you create um, a high-performing team. Something else, else I'll add to this is when you start looking at the world of complex adaptive systems and you start to see that a team is a complex adaptive systems, it's the quality of the interactions that matter more than the quality of individual agents, right? So um, you could take a bunch of um, B players, if you will, or session players in music and come together and make a really high performing jazz ensemble or rock band. And, and the same thing, same thinking is what we want to apply to uh, industry standards as well. So a lot, lot to unpack there. When you, Punch, you talk about, uh, you know, designing for flow and, and, and in your TED talk, you you likened it to a, to an airplane. You know, you have thrust, you have drag, you have lift and you have the weight. When, when you're designing these flow systems, do you do you have that in mind? OK, what can we do to to take away the drag? And, and what are, what are give us some examples in the real world of I mean, you mentioned 
parasitic drag and you you know lift drag thrust what are some of the, some examples in the real world of that in 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 systems uh wow we could we could spend a lot of time on this so uh, intent um you know when we talk about leaders intent or commanders intent what is it we're trying to do what how do we create the teams how do we create that trust that mutual trust on a team how do we set the direction of travel um, how do we stand up as leaders and identify that as a leader I can't know enough in a complex system. There's no one of us can understand the system um, as an individual. We have to look at it from a, a, a team perspective. Um, so that's that's one thing. When we dive deeper into like cognition and the way humans think and our biases and our heuristics, um, you could show folks that you know we you know if you think about uh, our perception as a controlled hallucination. You can demonstrate that through uh, examples like Adelson's checkerboard, where you have a couple squares that are the same color, but most people don't see them as the same color because of a uh, shadow being casted on them. Um, that is something that uh, you can build on as well and just show humans that uh, we, we have these natural biases or heuristics in our body that we have to overcome sometimes or mitigate, you say overcome, mitigate. Um, and we can design for that through red teaming techniques. How do we enable critical thinking? How do we think right share? How do we not anchor each other or have one person anchor a conversation? So that's the kind of type of drag that may be in, in all systems right there. How do you, how do you uh, mitigate that? Because uh, you can't really overcome that. We're, we're all humans and you just can't reduce our biases to zero, right? Um, you can look at the, uh, the human factor side of things. Um, understand that in our brains, you know, 2% of our body weight, the, the brain housing unit that sits on top of our shoulders between our ears, there's some gray matter up there that's burning 20% of our energy, but weighs about 2% of our body weight. What does this mean? It means that we're naturally lazy. Uh, we like to take shortcuts and we need to find ways to uh, uh, move from system one to system two thinking from, from time to time. So there's there's a lot we could do with the drag piece and understand that, uh, apply different tools and techniques to help groups and organizations or teams really mitigate those, um, those, those tendencies that make us human. Uh, and, and if you look at the, uh, you know, the center of the aircraft, the, um, where the center of gravity is, if you will, that, in my opinion, should be your your customer, something that's outside in, right? And uh, speaking of outside in, bottom up, when you look at the Toyota production system and, and uh, what we learned from there, outside in, bottom up is really control. Uh, that control of the system is from the outside and the command or leadership is from the inside, right? Top down, inside out. The same thing is kind of true with the, the way we perceive the world and the way our mind and our brain creates uh, perceptions of reality. Again, a lot to unpack there, but uh, hopefully that answers some of your questions. Sure. You know, so we talked about this before on the program when we were talking about flow in a, in a different um, setting, but there's that graph that um, is commonly used when we're talking about flow, where on the x-axis you have the um, individual's or team's capacity to act, and on the y-axis you have that um, the axis or you have the individual or team's opportunity to act. So, you know, at the far bottom right, where you have a a lot of capacity and not maybe a lot of action, um, you get boredom. And then at the, the top left, you know, you have very little capacity to act as a team, but you get a lot of opportunity. And so you ended up get, getting anxiety and burnout. And so it, in then directly through the middle, you have flow where the kind of that capacity and opportunity align perfectly. And, um, you know, you're really acting at you're you're not bored, you're not overly anxious and you're 
essentially you're working at the the full strength of, of your team and in individual capacity. Um, you're so in the groove. About, yeah, you're in the groove. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, especially when you're talking about the, the capacity at the bottom, that axis, you know, if you're a very, very experienced uh, clinician in clinic and uh, maybe you open up a new clinic and you only have one or two patients show up that first day, um, you're going to be bored. You're going to be sitting there waiting on patients and you're not going to have anything to do uh, with those one or two clinic patients. Whereas if you're very new, you know, maybe you're a new intern and you're in clinic for the first time and you have uh, two or three patients that whole day, that's that's maybe enough for you, you know, to really get started. Um, and so as you gain that experience and gain that capacity, um, you know, that flow is able to align it if you add more patients. Um, but how do we design that when we're talking about a team, talking about a process or a project so that we you know, successfully align that capacity with the opportunity. Uh, that's a that's a tough question. That's uh, uh, you got me thinking on this one. So, going back to the uh, opportunity and capacity side of the house, uh, if that opportunity when I talked about the uh, the external environment, that's the opportunity, right? And the capacity is going to be more of internal side of the house. Uh, what we need to do is design for the internal side uh, first. That's my opinion. As we look at those internal um, technical skills and non-technical skills, how do we develop those? And once you think about, I hate to use the 10,000 hour rule, but I think it's kind of been dismissed. That type of thinking in, a, in an ordered system, when you, when you build a connection between cause and effect over and over, it becomes an autonomic response in the brain, right? That's why golfers are great at what they do. And um, uh, there are other examples of that. But you got to build up that autonomic response on a team too, right? Now, how you work together as a team, That's those are the soft skills or the hard skills, the, uh, the human factor skills that you need to work on. Same thing is true with your technical side. Your technical chops of surgeons, you need to make sure you have that. And uh, then in order to create the opportunity, it's uh, just that if you have one or two patients that are coming through your system, you are going to get bored. If you have the high technical capability and high teaming skill capability, you probably get bored. So you, you have to have a good balance there. Um, I think one you can control. Um, one is the uh, the capability side. The other one is you have to search for those opportunities on on how do you bring that in from the outside in, right? That's the control side of the um, the equation on uh, outside in, bottom up, or top down, inside out. So I, is that helpful? Is that is that kind of helping you see how I view that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, especially you know we're talking about the the low opportunity side of things, whereas. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of what we see in healthcare, unfortunately, and especially over the last couple of years, is maybe that top left part of the graph where, um, you know, maybe we have a lot of uh, really sick patients coming through the door, and uh, you know, due to turnover, due to you know, some of these shortages in staff that we've had over the years, uh, we we don't have as much of that capacity at that uh, on the x-axis, and so we get a lot of anxiety and burnout. Um, yeah. And so designing that and reducing that and so getting that optimal flow, I think, is, is a bit harder because it takes time to build that capacity. It's not something you can turn on and off overnight. Yeah, yeah. so maintaining or sustaining that type of capacity. So the couple of things about flow, we, we can't always be in a state of flow. It's just it's going to take up too much. It, it'll actually hurt us, right? So you want to get there occasionally and then come back. But to maintain that uh, capacity, um, what we do is and what we did in naval aviation and what we're doing with the the team science aspect is really helping um, create that internal capacity and capability by having a true understanding of how teams work, right? And that 
when you have a mentor program or you have new people coming on your team who bring different perspectives, how do you integrate them rapidly? Or how do you hack that Tuckman model of forming, storming, norming, and performing? How do you hack that? And that's what we're trying to do with the team science aspect of the flow system is really inject the mental models, shared mental models of ex expert teams into uh, a culture or into an uh, organization. And, and truly, when you think about naval aviation, and go back to the movie Top Gun and the flight deck of an aircraft carrier, uh, we have 100% turnover every four years on the flight deck, right? I'll say that again, 100% turnover every four years, but it's a high reliability organization, the same type of organization I think a lot of uh, people in your industry are trying to create. And then when we get into the jet, the same thing is true, is, is we can't maintain that high level of flow. I mean, it's, it's awesome to be there, but you, you'll burn out, right? So you got to come down and do something else for a little while and then go back in. So we rotate people in and out of the cockpit, in, at least in the Navy. So the same thing um, must be true in your organization. And I'm going to connect us to something else called John Boy Doodaloo, Observe, Orient, Decide, Act, um, which underpins a lot of uh, decision making and, and uh, a paradigm for survival and growth. One of the key things in there is destruction and creation. Uh, so we have to destroy things um, to recreate them, right? So if you think about great sports teams, uh, New England Patriots come to mind. How do they maintain that high level of um, ability over the years? And it's because they, they kept going through this destruction and creation cycle. Same thing is true on a flight deck of an aircraft carrier. We're going through destruction and creation, right? Um, and that that's how we get there. So you can't, you don't ever want to sustain um, you know, have have the same members on a team for many, 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 many years. You got to go through iterations and uh, evolve that. Otherwise, you get complacent and you fail. I think that's real interesting. You said, you know, you that there's 100% turnover. And it, is that just because they're just operating at the top of their game the whole time? Is it is it good to pull them off? I mean, you know, should should other should other industries and other sectors think about that? And I'm even I'm even thinking about, you know, God forbid physicians, you know, we're out there a lot of times and, you know, should we be, I don't know if I'm trying to say it, should we limit, you know, I, I don't I don't have I how don't long have somebody should be uh, working. I, you know, the, the sabbatical idea is not a bad, bad thing. I think uh, we've seen that happen in other industries. Burnout, uh, you, you definitely want to mitigate that. Um, but with with what I've seen in healthcare, what they borrowed from fighter aviation is when you move from, um, you know, an anesthesiologist into the surgical area, so you're, you're doing that, that flow approach, moving from one room to another. Um, when you meet the surgeon for the first time and the surgeon gets up and he, and he says things like, my name's Dr. You know, Dr. Lowe, for example, um, I'm here to do this operation. You know, I'm operating on the right knee writing on the right knee, you know, borrowing from the checklist, that the checklist mindset that we have inside of aviation. And then asking everybody, I want your name and I want to know why you're in this room. And then it goes through that real fast and then comes back to the surgeon and says, hey, look, I need you to help me today, right? Because I'm a human and I make mistakes. You need to speak up, create that environment, that psychological safety. So at, at some point that that becomes tiresome, right? I mean, it, it's it's hard work being that person because being vulnerable over years and years and years is tough on the psyche right in my opinion so you do have to relieve people to go do something else for a little bit and let them come back um, and again you want to bring people in that have new perspectives as well and you want people to see things that are uh, see the world a little bit differently to provide that feedback to that doctor 
you know, who, who, who may or may not have the big ego, may not, may be the big God in the room or the um, same, same problem we had in commercial aviation 30, 40 years ago with a godlike uh, figure, right? So again, I, I'm not going to tell you you should be pulling your surgeons or your people out in and out of uh, their roles, but there's nothing wrong with um, uh, moving people around. Right? You mentioned in your introduction um, related to flow that minimizing distractions is is key. So distractions, which we have a lot of in healthcare, uh, influence yeah. flow. It's, it's the same thing that we're doing in industry, right? So we're trying to get everybody to be present. And, and in this day and age where we have our electronic nicotine right next to us, you know, where we can just play around and, and search on the internet while we're having a meeting, like that becomes um, a very distractor. You, ought to, you, ought, you also have to look at humans. They have an intent, identity, and intelligence. That means we're shifting who we are throughout the day, right? And I, I get this from Dave Snowden and his Kinevin framework. So, um, you think about being distracted at home and, and the type of work that I'm working on right now with um, oil and gas, people working remotely, they go from a mother, father, brother, sister during the morning, um, worried about bills to uh, focusing on one project, going to another meeting on Microsoft Teams or Zoom, jumping into another project, answering the phone, checking the mail, uh, Amazon comes by, you know, they're completely distracted all day long. And that's burning a lot of energy uh, for people. So they're, they're, mental health is a problem these days as well, right? So what we're trying to do to create that flow is you got to create environment where people can be present. And that's what we do with things like Scrum. That's what we do with Kanban. That's what we do with mapping. That's why we create situational awareness, um, help people understand what happened in the past so they can see what's happening now and project out in the future and what's going to potentially happen. So um, it's being present is one of the reasons or one of the, it's what we're trying to do with all the triggers behind flow is get people to be present. And why is that? Because it lowers cognitive load. Uh, it releases uh, neuropinephrine and, and dopamine, I believe it is, and the brain rewards you a little bit more when you're in that, in that kind of state. So it comes back to the mental health aspect as well as how do you create that focus so people can be present? And that connects us back to like mindfulness and yoga, sports and all that as well. I wanted to uh, get your thoughts. Um, a few months ago, <clears throat> we had a couple of ER physicians, <clears throat> excuse me, on the show, uh, Dr. Tom Meyer and Dr. Kurt Jensen, and they they are ED physicians, and they wrote a book called Hardwiring Flow, specifically flow as it relates to healthcare, and they equated flow with value, and so they said anything that you're doing to increase flow particularly in a hospital or the, in the emergency room, is adding value for, for the patient or, or the customer who, who yep. happens to be our patients. I uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on that because that, that was I, something, I, a, a unique, something, yeah, or not, I, not unique, I, something I, new that I, I had never heard before. Yeah, so if you think about, uh, you get a value stream mapping and value and go to our flow system, customer first value delivery. And if you think about value as a currency, um, yes, I agree with that because what's happening is there's a lot of, activities that add no value, right, to the things we do. And in fact, when I was with Toyota several years ago, I, I can't remember how inefficient some of the processes were, but inside of an organization known for uh, value streams or value, deliver, uh, delivering value, a lot of waste in there. So the same, to me, it's, it's you got to design that system that reduces uh, the energy costs associated with waste, right? And I think that may be what they're going after. And the same thing is true with, um, you know, when we have these things right next to us, this, this electronic nicotine, however you want to call it, 
on all these distractions, that's a waste, right? It's creating waste because we can't be uh, we can't be focused. So, Brian, this has been really, really good. I've got to ask one more question, and I know I could probably keep you here a long time, but we'll have to have you back. But here's been a thought of mine, and I'd love to hear you respond to it on whether you think uh, that I'm correct in my thinking or perhaps I'm incorrect. Uh, you know, as I just watch people in life, I've come to the realization that I think that uh, flow is really counterintuitive, M meaning that I'm, I've even made a joke that I think it's it's built into our DNA that people love batching. You know, wh whether mm -hmm. I see people at Sam's buying a three-foot can of peanut butter or whether I see how airplanes are still unloaded with passion passengers. And I've even had many, many ED physicians tell me, Skip, I don't know if you realize this, but batching is much more efficient than flowing. And I've scratched my head and I've started to think, well, maybe maybe this concept of batching is just built into us and yeah. that flow is really a counterintuitive principle. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I can't remember. I was working with Nigel several years ago, Nigel Thurlow, and I think he brought it up that batching is kind of inherent in our body, uh, inherent in our DNA, right? So if you think about that, we're inheriting the um, bad behaviors of our ancestors. So the more we continue to batch, it's going to be passed on through epigenetics, through, you know, uh, batching isn't always bad, right? There are, there, I can't give you examples right now, but batching is not always bad. There are times you need to do it. Um, however, I do believe it is part of our, uh, our DNA to, to, to do that. And maybe because uh, going back to what Jake brought up about that opportunity, if you're bored and you have capacity and empty space, maybe batching is what you're going to do, right? Because you don't need to be efficient at that time. So I don't know. No, great point. Well, Brian, thank you so much. I know this went fast today. I hope that you'll uh, consider coming back on the podcast again. This has been really exciting to think about uh, this subject or this principle of flow that seems to be uh, hard to grasp sometimes. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for everything you're doing. And we're really, really appreciative of you. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. It's been uh, awesome being here. Thanks for your time. Thanks a lot, Punch.